If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the Old Testament, Psalm 22. This psalm is well known for its many references and suggestions in the New Testament. And we can see this in Matthew 27, John 19, and Hebrews 2. The psalm, like Psalm 69, expresses the suffering of Christ, the son of David, dying at the hands of wicked men. This psalm presents the reader with a great contrast and mood. Lament characterizes the first 21 verses, while praise and thanksgiving describe the last 10 verses. Prayer accounts for this dramatic shift from lament to praise. It is a story of first being God forsaken and then God found and filled. It was applied immediately to David and ultimately to the greater David, the Messiah. The New Testament contains 15 Messianic quotations of or allusions to this psalm, leading some in the early church to label it the fifth gospel. We'll begin reading Psalm 22, and we'll begin at the superscript. This is God's word. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy and thrown on the praises of Israel. If you are our fathers, in you our in you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted, and were put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potshed, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. 
and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Amen. Please turn with me to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. And we'll begin reading at verse 32 through 42. The name Gethsemane means oil press and referred to a garden filled with olive trees on a slope of the Mount of Olives. Jesus frequented this spot with the disciples when he wanted to get away from the crowds to pray. This is the first time Mark gives special status to these three disciples, Peter, James, and John. Scripture never explains why these men were sometimes allowed to witness things that the other disciples were excluded from, for example, at the transfiguration in Mark 9:2. But the trio did constitute an inner circle within the twelve. Most likely, Jesus had them accompany him into the garden because they were the leaders of the twelve and had to learn an important lesson to pass on to the others. We'll begin reading at Mark chapter 14 at verse 32. This is God's word. And, went, and, went, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer to him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Amen. Last Lord's Day was New Year's Day and the first Lord's Day of 2023. Now, there's nothing special about the first day of the year, and there's nothing special about having the Lord's Day as the first day of the year. We did last week what we do every Lord's Day. We gathered to worship our triune God. We gathered to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And being the first Sunday, we gathered around the Lord's table 
to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. But often as we approach the beginning of something, particularly the beginning of a new year, uh, we do so with a certain amount of, of hope. We do so with a certain amount of excitement and joy. There's something about it being new. Uh, we think where we failed last year, maybe this year we will succeed, despite having failed every other year. So we make resolutions, we, we have great aspirations, um, and there's excitement and joy at the beginning of, of something, particularly the new year. Pastor Ben preached on our great high priest's finished atonement last Lord's Day. The reality that Christ's death has, has dealt with the wrath of God that abided upon us, that we justly deserved. And there's really no more exciting or joyful news than that of our redemption, the fact that we can be reconciled to a holy God. And I'm very thankful that Pastor Ben preached that message last week and that I was not tasked with preaching this psalm on the first day of the new year. But in God's providence, we have come to Psalm 88 this morning. So if you have not already done so, please turn in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 88. In 1682, a Scottish lay preacher in the parish of Merkirk, uh, by the name of John Brown, was married to his second wife, Isabella Marion Weir. Weddings are typically joyful occasions. I imagine this one was at least somewhat joyful. But at the conclusion of their marriage ceremony, after their vows had been given, the minister that was presiding over this marriage, Alexander Payton, issued a grave warning to the bride. Payton said, Isabel, you have got a good man, but you will not enjoy him long. Prize his company and keep linen by you to be his winding sheet, to be his burial shroud. For you will need it when you are not looking for it, and it will be a bloody one. Imagine hearing that as the bride. Three years later, on the first day of May, 1685, John Brown arose early in the morning. He conducted family worship with his wife and two children. The text that morning was John 16, and that chapter concludes with these words in John 16:33. I have said these things to you, that in me you have peace, may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Shortly afterward, while John was out preparing peat ground, royal authorities arrived. They marched him to the door of his own home. And with a boy in her arms and a girl in her hand, his wife went to the door to stand by her husband. The authorities had come to execute John without trial. His crime was preaching the word of God and not doing so in a church. If you're here for the last hour, there have been times in history where that wasn't something that was approved of. He was a lay preacher. He would go out to the fields and he would lead prayers and worship because the official church had departed from the truth. When John was asked to recant, to pray for the king, he denied and he was told to kneel because he was to die. And so he knelt down and he prayed. He kissed his wife. He kissed his children. 
He walked out into the street and he was cut down by a firing squad. Isabella, once the soldiers had departed, went to where his body lay. She knelt down in the ground alone. She gathered up the pieces, we're told, and scattered organs of her husband's body and then buried them with her own hands behind the house. Peyton's warning was warranted. Now, I must warn you this morning because Psalm 88 is unique in its bleakness. Commentators often don't agree on much, and they don't agree on every point of this psalm, but they are in agreement that this is one of the saddest, most depressed, and afflicted laments in Scripture. Most psalms, even those that are laments, and 59 of the 150 psalms are labeled laments. That means over a third of the Psalter is dealing with believers lamenting their current situation. And all of them end with a hint of hope or assurance, except Psalm 88. Psalm 88 begins in desperation, and it ends in darkness. The Reformation Study Bible says this psalm is the most depressed of all the laments in the Psalter. The writer's distress can be heard from beginning to end. This is the only psalm that ends on such a downcast note. The Faith Life Study Bible comments Psalm 88, which is specifically identified as a song, is an unusually despairing individual lament psalm. It does not include the customary sense of trust or hope that usually closes such psalms. John Calvin notes, this psalm contains very grievous lamentations, poured forth by its inspired penman when under very severe affliction and almost at the point of despair. Derek Kidner, in his noted pithy fashion, says, there is no sadder prayer in the Psalter. H.C. Leupold wrote, it is the gloomiest psalm found in the scriptures, adding, that the psalmist is as deeply troubled when he has concluded his prayer as when he began it. J.J. Stuart Perone said, This is the darkest, saddest psalm in all the Psalter. It is one wail of sorrow from beginning to end. The Essential Bible Companion to the Psalms compares this psalm with Psalm 22, saying, If Psalm 22 is a psalm for Good Friday, Psalm 22 is... Brother Walton has already read to us being a psalm depicting the crucifixion. That's a, a perfect psalm for Good Friday. Well, if that is the case, this is a psalm for Holy Saturday. Now, what's Holy Saturday? That's not a, a day we would typically celebrate in the church calendar. But Holy Saturday is the day in between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. This is a psalm for Holy Saturday. The psalm ends not in praise nor in any statement of confidence, but in darkness, despair, and abandonment. Psalm 22, as we've already considered, the psalm of, of the crucifixion begins with these despairing words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But even in that dark psalm, the last ten verses end in glory. It ends with the nations gathering and worshiping Almighty God. Psalm 88 has no such happy ending. The psalm opens with a cry to be heard, and it's followed by three 
stanzas each which has a reference to darkness and death. And I've outlined Psalm 88 as follows. A prayer for hearing in verses 1 through 2. Scourged near Sheol, verses 3 through 7. Abandoned in Abaddon, verses 8 through 12. And devoured by darkness, verses 9 through 18. There in a nutshell, says the New Bible Dictionary, is this psalm without hope. Let us go to the Lord and ask him to bless this text to us this morning. Our Father, we come before you this morning as needy children. We are in need of your grace and your mercy. We have come to this text in your appointed time. We trust that as with all of Scripture, it is inspired by you. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness. That you have given it to us for our good. Yet we recognize that this is a dark song. It is a weighty song to be sung. Father, we ask as we work our way through the text this morning that you would help us to to understand the mind of Christ that is here speaking. Help us to, to wrestle with these issues. And above all, help us to trust you in all things. For we ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll begin our exposition of this text with a superscript. And the superscript may be the only part of this psalm devoid of negative emotions. And the only reason I can say that is because we don't know what all the Hebrew words mean in the superscript. We see first that it's a song. This is meant to be sung. It's a psalm of the sons of Korah. And this will technically be the last of the psalms of Korah that we will encounter in our journey through the psalms. Though Psalm 89 should probably be included with them, we'll consider that when we get to that text. We're told that this is to the choir master according to Mahalath Leonath. This was given to the chief musician, the choir master, to be composed around some tune. We have no idea what that means, Mahalath Leonath. But it was to be composed around that tune so that God's people could sing it in worship. And we're told it's a maskil of Haman the Ezraite. Now a maskil is likely a psalm of instruction or a teaching psalm. Brother Scott mentioned earlier that one of the things we do when we gather to worship and sing, we are meant to be teaching. Now, this is a psalm particularly suited for that task. Haman the Ezraite is likely, though not definitively, the Haman that lived during Solomon's time as recorded in 1 Kings 4.31. We read in that text that Solomon was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, who wrote Psalm 89, and Haman, probably the author of Psalm 88, Calcol, Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. There's a Haman listed in 1 Chronicles 15, where he is listed as a temple musician and singer. And that may be the Haman that is mentioned here, who has penned Psalm 88, though Chronicles lists him as a son of Zerah, and Psalm 88 calls him an Ezraite. Regardless of whether the psalm 
was written by the Haman from Solomon's day or a later Haman, what we can say is that this was inspired by the Holy Ghost. It was delivered to the choir master and it was meant to be sung in the worship of God by God's people. It being scripture is God-breathed, inerrant, infallible, and profitable for us. So with that, we come to a prayer for hearing in verses 1 and 2. And the first half of the first verse is the only hopeful line in the song. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. This is the only glimmer of hope in the song. But we must not lose sight of how Haman opens this text. This is not the prayer of an unbeliever. This is the prayer of a redeemed saint. This is the prayer of one in desperate trouble, afflicted, abandoned by friends, depressed, struggling, yet despite it all, the prayer of one who takes his trials to the Lord. Now the rest of the psalm must be taken in that light because the rest of it doesn't always seem like it's coming from a believer. Haman appeals to Yahweh, Lord, all caps, the covenant-keeping God, who is the God of his salvation. And to this God, Haman says that he cries night and day, continually, persistently, day and night, night and day. Now, how long did this go on for Haman? We'll see later in the psalm that the answer isn't hours, it's not days, it's not even weeks or months. It's likely that whatever affliction that Haman is experiencing in this text goes on for years, probably decades. And what is it that Haman is crying out to God? We see in verse 2, he says, Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. His prayer, first and foremost, is that God would hear him. That God would answer him. That God would speak and do something about the affliction that he is in. Haman doesn't groan in solitude. He doesn't grumble to his neighbors. He does not rail against his creator. He cries out to him and asks to be heard. And then that leads us to the first major stanza in verses 3 through 7, where we find Haman scourged near Sheol. Verse 3 says, For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. We'll see later that Haman's troubles were both external and internal, but here he begins with the internal. His soul is full of troubles, not partially troubled, but full of troubles. And not trouble singular, but troubles plural. So much so that it, it is as if his life is being drawn down to Sheol. And Sheol is simply a term in the Old Testament for the grave or the afterlife. Haman is saying that he is at death's door. His troubles have brought his soul to the grave, or as William, William Plumer states, his life was a living death. Now, not only does Haman feel this way about himself, but others view him this way as well in verses 4 and 5. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom... You remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. The pit is another reference to the grave. In fact, there's at least ten references, ten different words or phrases that Haman uses throughout this text to refer to the grave or to the afterlife. 
Haman is like one of those who has been loosed from his body, which body is then tossed into the ground like the rest of the dead. And he describes those in the grave as those who remember no more and those that are cut off from your hand. And some commentators would take such statements like that and say that in the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints didn't have a theology of the afterlife. They only had a theology of this life. And though it's true that the New Testament sheds much greater light on life after death, the Old Testament saints certainly had an understanding of the life to come. We see that in Joseph's desires for his bones to be taken back to the promised land. And we see it most particularly in Job 19, where Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. See, I don't believe Haman is trying to give a detailed detailed account of the intermediate state between death and resurrection. I think what he's doing here is simply describing things from the point of view of the living. We'll see that more fully when we get to the next stanza. First in verse 6, we we begin to see more distinctly that Haman attributes his affliction to the hand of God. He says in verse 6, You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. It is God who has done this. God has placed Haman in this situation. Now, understanding God's sovereignty over all things can both ease our pain and exacerbate our pain. It's one thing to be assailed by mankind. It's another thing to feel that God himself is angry with you and that God himself is punishing you, that a holy God is pouring out his wrath upon you. The pit and the realms, dark and deep, are synonyms, again, for the grave. Sheol, pit, realms, dark and deep. Haman conjures up every word in his vocabulary to describe his pitiful situation. He goes on in verse 7. He says, Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. Now, again, we must remember the first verse of this psalm. Haman is praying to the God of his salvation. What then is this talk of God's wrath lying heavy on him? Now, some would say that, well, in the Old Testament, they simply didn't understand that God's wrath could be dealt with. I don't think that's true. Instead, I think Haman is simply describing how he feels. See, even as believers, we sometimes feel that God is angry with us. We feel that God's wrath is being poured out upon us or that God has abandoned us. If we're true believers and we know our scriptures, we know that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We know that God will never forsake us or leave us. Yet at times, it certainly feels like he's abandoned us. It feels like he's pouring out his wrath. And this, I believe, is the case with Haman the Ezraite. And so appropriately, that stanza ends with the Selah. Pause and consider that. Reflect on the fact that even as believers, sometimes we feel abandoned by God. Now, as we shift to the second major stanza in verses 8 through 12, we find that the content of this stanza is much the same as the first. Yet Haman's vocabulary for the grave continues to expand. And so we find him in this stanza, abandoned in Abaddon. 
Look with me at verse 8. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Again, Haman rightly understands that God is the primary cause of all of his troubles. But this time his focus is on the abandonment by his companions. His friends now find him to be a terror. He feels trapped and unable to escape. His eyes now worn out with crying night and day have grown dim through sorrow. He goes on in verse 9, Every day I call upon you. O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. Again, we see that Haman's affliction is persistent and ongoing. Yet here again, take note that Haman does not abandon God. He does not give up on his entreaties for deliverance. He perseveres in his prayers. What's the longest you've prayed for something? And I don't mean in a single sitting. But what's the longest amount of time you have continually prayed for the same thing? Weeks, months, years? If you prayed for something for years, maybe the, the salvation of a loved one, have you consistently done it every day and every night? Well, Haman did. He consistently persevered in prayer. And he didn't just reach out to God with his voice, but he physically reached out his hands to God, stressing his need, pleading with God that God would answer him. And in verses 10 through 12, Haman asks a series of questions. And they're similar to the statements in verses 4 and 5. He, he asks questions about those that go to the grave. He's not doing so to articulate a theology of death, but to point out the perspective of those in this life. He asks in verse 10, Do you work wonders for the dead? Does God work wonders for the dead? Well, yes, in fact, God does work wonders for the dead. Now, a handful of people throughout history have been resurrected. All of them eventually died again except our Lord. But, but yes, God has done wonders for the dead in the past. And God certainly works wonders for his departed saints. Right there at his right hand, there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. But from our perspective as the living, we can't see that. From our perspective as the living, what does God do for the dead? Nothing. Again, in verse 10, he says, Do the departed rise up to praise you? Here I think we can see Haman's point more clearly. It's, it's not that the dead don't praise God. We know the departed saints are in heaven praising God even now. But you can't hear them. I can't hear them. The world can't hear them. The living cannot hear the praises of the dead. Their praises can do nothing to further God's glory here in the land of the living. He continues in verse 11 with his questions. He says, Is your steadfast love declared in the grave, or your faithfulness in Abaddon? And again, Haman expands his vocabulary here for the grave. Abaddon means destruction, perishing, or going to ruin. In Revelation 9-11, we're told, They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. 
Do the living have any sense of God's steadfast love and faithfulness to those that are in the grave? No. We can't see God's faithfulness to our departed loved ones. We believe that he is faithful to them, but we cannot see that he is faithful to them. Intellectually, we understand this, but experientially, the living know nothing of God's faithfulness to the dead. He goes on in verse 12, Are your wonders known in the darkness, or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Along with Sheol, Pit, realms dark and deep, grave and Abaddon, Haman adds darkness and land of forgetfulness to his despondent vocabulary. Those in the grave do not gaze upon God's wonders or see his righteousness, not in a way that has any benefit to the living. Derek Kidner comments on this. He says, From the standpoint of God's congregation and his glory in the world, all that is said here is true. It is among the living that miracles are performed, his praises sung, his constancy and acts of deliverance exhibited. So Haman is, is asking the question, if you send me to the grave, what benefit will there be? I can't praise you in the grave. No one can see your deliverance if I go to the grave. Haman has been scourged near Sheol and abandoned in Abaddon. And then Haman concludes his prayer in the final stanza, devoured by darkness. Verse 13, he says, But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Despite everything that is going on, Haman presses on with his importunity, seeking with tears to be heard by the God of his salvation. Now, in verse 14, Haman asks two more questions, this time not focused on the experience of those in the grave, but asking the reason for God's affliction. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? I think, again, we must remember that this is the prayer of a saint. Whether Haman had an understanding of eternal security as, as believers, we don't know. We do have such an understanding. We understand that those whom God calls, he justifies. And those whom he justifies, he glorifies. No one whom God foreknew will be lost. But even armed with that blessed knowledge, believers can and do sometimes feel as if God has cast them away. And that's how Haman felt in this psalm. He goes on in verse 15, Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors, I am helpless. The fact that he has been close to death since his youth indicates that this affliction has lasted years, probably decades. It also indicates that at least part of the affliction has been physical. It's possibly been a debilitating disease. Some have speculated that he suffered from leprosy. That would certainly account for the abandonment he experienced from his friends. For 16, your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They, sunk, they surround me like a flood all day long. 
they close in on me together. Reminiscent of Psalm 42, another Korahite psalm, Haman describes his affliction as a flood of God's wrath oversweeping him. If you've ever been to the beach and been taken down by a wave and held under, that, that's what Haman is describing here. He feels as if God's wrath is the ocean just swallowing him up. And then he draws this lament to a close in verse 18. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Alone, abandoned, and devoured by darkness. That word darkness appears earlier in verse 6, and it's, it's only found in poetical passages. It's usually associated with wickedness, terror, and blindness. And the ESV keeps the word order of the Hebrew at this point. Darkness is the last word of the psalm in the original text. There's no answers to his questions. There's no relief. There's no deliverance. There's no reply. Just darkness. I've wrestled all week with how to conclude this message. Do I end this message with hope, or do I end it the way the psalm ends it? Now, you might say, well, of course you have to end it with hope. We're Christians. (laughs) And you'd be right. We do have the hope of the resurrection. We have the hope of the blessed life to come. That's true. That's blessedly true. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. We know that we are commanded to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. We know that weeping endures for a night, but joy comes in the morning. But I'm concerned that if we move too fast from this text to the blessed hope, If we move too fast from suffering to glory, then we'll miss something profound we're meant to see in this text. Or worse, we'll trivialize the pain believers often experience. After Isabella Brown buried her husband John, other family members began to arrive. And a witness recorded the following. He said, we can see them still, these kinsfolk in grief, one with the white hair and the other with the dark, as they wept and prayed together. Had you gathered at Isabella Brown's home moments after her husband had been gunned down in the street, after she's gathered up pieces of him and buried them in the dirt with her own hand, what would you say to her? Would you walk up and tell her to count it all joy? Or, dear lady, know that this is part of God's perfect plan? Tell her, don't be surprised, dear sister, by this fiery trial, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. All of those things are true. We are to count all of our trials as joy. God has decreed all things. 
We should rejoice insofar as we share in Christ's sufferings. All those things are true, and there's a time for those truths. But there's also a time to obey the words of the Apostle Paul to weep with those who weep. See, too often I think we want to respond to the tragedies of others the way Job's friends responded to his. You see, Job's friends started out really well. They went and they just sat in silence with them. And then they opened their mouth. They should have kept it shut. In fact, there's a lot of parallels between this psalm and the book of Job, so much so that one scholar, Franz Delish, suggested that Job is actually the author of this psalm. I don't think that's true, but there, there are a lot of similarities. There's a time to come alongside a grieving person and point them to God's sovereignty, to point them to the glories of the life to come. But in the midst of the trial, like Haman's, I think there's something more valuable. I think what's most needed in those moments is the truth that God knows their pain. Now, I don't know of anyone here this morning that's struggling like Haman was. I hope nobody's struggling like Haman was. I hope 2023 isn't characterized by Psalm 88. I know some of you have certainly endured severe medical trials, even in the past year. There are those here who have lost loved ones, even children. Others have wrestled with not being able to have children. Some have had and are having to care for elderly loved ones. If you're here today and struggling, here's what I want you to see most this morning. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus in his incarnation took on human flesh and experienced every aspect of the human condition, including suffering. Just as Haman was scourged in Sheol, our Lord was grieved in Gethsemane. Haman was abandoned in Abaddon and Jesus was given up at Gabbatha. And as darkness devoured Haman, the Lord Jesus Christ was God forsaken at Golgotha. Haman cried out to God, he stretched out his arms to God, and he pleaded with God. And Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane withdrew from his disciples, and he prayed. And Luke tells us that being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, such that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. There's no record given to us in Holy Scripture that God answered him in the garden. The only reply that we see recorded there is that while he was still speaking to his disciples, soldiers and Judas came and he was arrested. All of Haman's companions abandoned him. All of Jesus' disciples scattered when he was arrested. He was taken before Pilate at Gabbatha, and mockingly, Pilate proclaimed him as king to the Jews that were gathered there. And the Jews responded, crucify him, crucify him. The leaders of the Jews said, we have no king but Caesar. 
And so our Lord was given up to them to be crucified. Haman felt surrounded by God's dreadful assaults. And Walt read for us earlier from Psalm 22, which some have called the most accurate depiction of the crucifixion in the entire Bible. And in that psalm, we see that Jesus, too, was surrounded. Psalm twenty-two, twelve. he says, Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Haman was devoured by darkness. And as Christ hung on the cross at Golgotha, we are told that between the hours of the sixth hour and the ninth hour, there was darkness over the whole land. And then at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi. Lima Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, our Lord understands your pain far better than you can imagine. We have a sympathetic high priest who can understand and sympathize with our pain. So if you're suffering this morning, let this psalm encourage you to persevere in prayer as Haman did, knowing that the one to whom you are praying understands your pain. You can be honest with God. There's really no point in not being honest with God. When you think about it, God knows your heart. Um, And yet, how often do we go to God and try to clean up our feelings, clean up our prayers? Haman doesn't do that. Haman just pours it out. Plead with him night and day and never forget that he hears you, he cares for you, and he can sympathize with your pain. And if you're here this morning and life is great, if all is well, praise God. But if so, let this psalm be a reminder of two things. First, remember that one of your brothers or sisters may be in the slew of despond, the dark night of the soul. Let us look out for one another. Let us check in with one another and let us minister one to another. And in doing so, recognize that believers can suffer greatly in this life. Don't be so quick to point out how God is using this for their good that you trivialize the pain they're going through. We are commanded not only to encourage and exhort them, but to weep with those who weep. And second, remember that though all may be well now, you have no guarantees of life, of, of ease in this life. Psalm 88 is a desperate song, but the song of a saint nonetheless. The last verse that John Brown read to his family John 16, 33 is a reminder we need often. Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Beloved, I do want to offer you hope. Jesus has overcome the world. But I don't want to rush to that so quickly that we trivialize the pain. We sometimes skip straight from Good Friday to Easter morn. We don't think much of what it was like for the disciples on Saturday morning. You've had your entire world crushed when you saw your Lord crucified on Friday. And you can imagine the disciples waking up Saturday morn. And initially you wake up and then you remember what happened on the previous day. And it's like he was crucified all over again. The whole flood of emotions pours back over you. 
We are commanded to weep with those who weep. Let me close with the words of James Montgomery Boyce. I think this is a fitting conclusion to the psalm. He says, It is good that we have a psalm like this. This psalm has been given to us for our instruction. But he goes on to say, It is also good that we have only one. We need to remember that we are not promised deliverance in this life. There are some that may experience suffering to the day they die. That does not mean they are not blessed by the Lord. This psalm has been a difficult one. But our lives as believers are often difficult ones. I think this text is here to remind us of that. To encourage us that We're to persevere through those trials, recognizing that God is the God of our salvation, even when it doesn't feel like it. Let us pray. Father, we we thank you for this text this morning. We thank you that your saints that have composed the Psalms have been honest, they've been transparent. That we can be encouraged that though when we feel abandoned by you, we are not the only ones. We are not the only saint who has felt such things. And yet, Father, help us to remember that you do not abandon us. You do not forsake us or leave us. That you have purchased us by the death of your Son, Jesus Christ, and you will not let us go. Father, enable us to persevere through any trial that you bring into our lives and enable us to minister to those around us, to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice, and to encourage one another as we see the day approaching. We ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.